Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors in minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises, and most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, where we celebrate JavaScript and the web each and every week. Hey, tell your friends about the show. Everyone's invited. We record in front of a live internet audience on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. Listen and participate at changelog.com slash live or follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM and we'll notify you. All right. Party time, y'all. Hello, JS Party listeners. Welcome to another new episode and we, where we talk about JavaScript and argue about everything <laughs> JavaScript. <laughs> yes. I'm your host, Divya, and with us today, we have a wonderful panel. We have K-Ball. Hello. And Nick Nisi. Ahoy, ahoy. <laughs> and also, we have Jared with us. What's up? Cool. So for today, we actually are doing a format that's really similar to what we did before. So in a previous podcast episode, we talked about all the things that browsers can do from what is upcoming proposals to proposals that have come through. And this week, we are actually talking about things that browsers cannot do despite users wanting it to do all these things. And this question particularly comes in from Glenn R. Goodwin. Thank you so much for your question and your request for this particular episode. So we will particularly be talking about what is stagnating in browsers, what particular browser technology has remained the same and has continued to be a pain point. And so for this, we will start by talking about APIs that were not developed or that never saw the light of day. I think we have to start with the Web Coffee API just to tie into the last episode on this. <laughs> My favorite, apparently. <laughs> yes, the Web Coffee API. I think the big win from that episode is we did manage to rickroll <laughs> at least one person. Did we really? And yes, one person who admitted it freely online. So that means there was probably a 10 silent Rickroll ease <laughs> that we At haven't least. heard from, but uh, yeah, that was a big win for me personally. Highlight yeah, definitely. So maybe a good point to start is to talk about a very big one, like API or a web spec that has never de been developed. Personally, my annoyance is with input elements and form attributes because that has been a pain point for a very long time and input elements have not <laughs> changed much in the last like 20 or so years. What's missing? What would you love to have there? I agree that there hasn't been much change, but what's the pain? I think it's just a way of styling it. I think styling is still a pain. It's frustrating that a lot of the interactions are not native, so you have to add extra styling to make like input elements easy to interact with because a lot of the browser attributes make it really hard to work with and like it adds extra burden for the developer to add all these extra things because they have to style it. They have to add interaction using JavaScript if they want to make things work in a certain way, which I think is just a lot of work. I, I think one thing that is 
I, we'll talk about in a bit, but it's related. It's the button attribute. So it's related to forms in a way because every form has a button, even though you use like input type button, still button. <laughs> yeah. But w one of the things that I'm annoyed by with buttons specifically is that I always have to do button cursor pointer, which I'm just like, <laughs> everyone has to do that. It should be default by now. And there's so many others within input elements that are just like really terrible to style. What do y'all think? I 100% agree. That has been a pain point forever. That said, there is some progress. There's the CSS appearance property that I just saw an article go by around uh, that I can link to where so long as you can ditch IE11, and let's be honest, if you're not supporting governments and massive enterprises, by now right. you should be able to ditch IE11, then you can style a lot more. You can style mm -hmm. checkboxes, you can style radio buttons, you can style switches, doing these things that used to take these ridiculous hacks, and now you can do it with just CSS. I'll drop a link in the chat and then the show notes for that, but there has been progress. It adds a way for you to style it. Uh, how exactly does it work? Now, that's a good question. It uh, makes it Makes it easier. To I think the bi the biggest thing was uh, it adds pseudo elements like oh, before okay. and after to yeah. inputs, yeah. which lets you do a lot of stuff that you used to hack around by having to do a container and another element, and whatever. So if, like, if you want to do a custom styled checkbox, it used to be that what you'd have to do is hide the real checkbox and add elements that. Mm -hmm fake out those checkbox. Well, that's still yeah. kind of what you have to do, but you don't have to actually add those elements anymore because now they have pseudo elements. Yeah, so actually that's really interesting. I used to do that for checkboxes and radio buttons. And so Estelle Weil gives a really good, good talk about, I think it's titled The Humble Radio Button. And I heard her talk very recently at a conference I was at. And you need one single CSS property that will just remove all styles, which is WebKit appearance none. And that mm -hmm. automatically re removes default styles, which I, I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't know that because I would always just like position absolute it and then display none and then always move it really far away and then restyle the entire thing. And if you use one single CSS property, it just automatically removes it. And then you can just add on top of it, which is really cool. I mean... Granted, a lot of the input properties should be easily stylable without you having to do a lot of extra work, but I wish more people knew about that. Yeah, it still feels like a hack, but it is, it is, it is. better. Yeah, it definitely is. And so I think I remember at um, the recent most Chrome Dev Summit, Google was mentioning that they've tackled input elements and to make it better. And But I don't know if it's... I think it's still browser-specific. So if you're using Chrome then they have styled input elements so it's prettier and it's almost like material design-like. Mm -hmm. But again, it's super browser-specific, which I think doesn't fully address the problem, which is creating a standard around input elements across browsers. Because what got us here in the first place was just that we were all fight, like every browser was fighting and nev never really came to consensus over what they agreed upon. And so every browser had specific implementations of what worked and what didn't work. Like some browsers will put padding around certain input elements while others won't. And you always have to identify those like edge cases, which is really mm -hmm. frustrating. So I don't actually know if Chrome fixing that is pushing standards forward. It's Even where they've moved 
on input elements, for example, adding additional types like type equals number and stuff like that. You have different implementations across browsers like you're talking about. And then you also have it being like, it's almost like the uncanny valley of a good input. Like you're like, oh, cool, I, I could use number, but it has these seven limitations or it doesn't work the way I want it to. And it's not that easy to customize. Anytime that most developers are throwing out elements completely uh, wholesale and just doing their own thing, like with select boxes, uh, anytime you go beyond a very simple select, most people grab a widget that just completely replaces mm -hmm. it and is like built with divs or, you know, some sort of weird thing. Uh, that's a place where I think the browser vendors or whomever, the, the powers that be, that a B3C and whatnot have let us down. There's, of course, also the hope that if browser standards around that were better, then we don't have to always re reach for JavaScript because... Technically, with a bit of HTML and CSS, you should be able to get pretty far. But because a lot of these input elements are really hard to style and work with, you end up having to reach for JavaScript. Or you need to know CSS super well to get around a lot of these hacks, which I think ends up be like dividing the community in a sense with people who are like, you should know CSS so well that you can hack your way through input elements. And then others who are like, browser standards suck, we're just going to rewrite an entire input element from scratch without using the standards at all. Exactly. I have to admit, I had no idea that you could get this far with, with CSS without appearance stuff. That's really cool. Yeah, it's a neat trick that I think more people should know about. I tweeted it recently being like, more people should know about it. While we're talking about CSS and CSS that we've been wanting for, well, in this case, eight or nine years, what about container queries? That's true. What is the development of container queries? What's the status of qu container queries at the moment? Can you describe container queries? Never going to happen. <laughs> it's just Never not. <laughs> yeah, actually, maybe it's worth describing it. Never yes. going to let you down. Okay, so I can give it back. So container queries are, are a perhaps more natural way of thinking about responsiveness. And so this, I think, discussion... I found a, a post about the origin story. So the discussion actually started in, I believe, 2013. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, instead of having this idea of a media query where we look at the size of the viewport to decide how we want to influence CSS and lay it out, perhaps we should actually look at the space allocated to a an element mm -hmm. or a query or a container and lay things out inside of it based on that, which makes a ton of sense, right? Because you shouldn't need to have global knowledge to be able to style a particular component. You should only need to know how much space does that component have available to it mm -hmm. and lay it out in that way. So it makes a ton of sense. I believe that it has a lot of technical challenges. There's all sorts of different things. Oh, no, looking at this article, actually, it started back in 2010 was when they first started talking about it. So it's been 10 years that people have been talking about this. It's never gotten anywhere. I think there are some proposals to do something that is sort of like this, mm -hmm. but it's never gone anywhere. And it would completely change the way you could think about front-end development and responsive design and all of that because suddenly you could design components that were themselves responsive without mm -hmm. having to have a global understanding of the page. And so you could ship naturally responsive sets of you know, component libraries where you could plug them into whatever space you had available in your page and count that they would render in a reasonable way. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's fair. I think it's um, whenever you, you do responsive design or anything, it's frustrating that you always have to seed to the parent and the parent needs to tell how much width it has. And then every child element can then be like a percentage of that, which is really frustrating because then you always have to go up this stack to figure out who the parent is and what the parent's sizing is. And it can lead to really frustrating um, like edge cases, especially when you're dealing with one specific component only that needs to do one particular type of style within a layout. So I agree. I think there was rumblings of like moving that forward with CSS nesting and like, but I'm not sure that went farther then. Because I, th from what I'm seeing, there's a W3C proposal for CSS nesting, but that was closed. So I don't know if that's going to move forward. And Chris Coyer wrote like an article similar to Zach's article about container queries. This was in 2019. So just like container queries and the fact that we still don't have them, which, yeah, very frustrating. All right. So alongside that, there are some other things that are not implemented in browsers. I think one of the things that is often talked about especially in the JavaScript side of things, <laughs> is web components. <laughs> because <laughs> that comes up whenever we talk about frameworks, because frameworks are essentially, well, arguably a re-implementation of web components or a specific implementation of web components. I think React got a lot of criticism for that. What do you all think in particular to that? I like the idea of web components. Um, last time I looked at them, though, like the, the implementation just seems way more complicated and difficult than it needs to be compared to, you know, something like React. I think the biggest barrier is that folks have really come around to loving the kind of declarative mm -hmm. model of programming mm -hmm. that most modern frameworks provide. And the implementation of web components is, at least the last time mm -hmm. I looked, entirely imperative. And there's, so there's a mismatch. What I have seen is compile to web component type things so that mm -hmm. frameworks that offer this declarative programming model can then compile down to web components. And as we see growth in runtime-less or very light runtime frameworks like Svelte, I think that becomes more of a model where web components can become essentially a compile target where you are building whatever you want in whatever programming model you want, and then you compile it down to a web component that can be shipped as a reusable thing. I'd be curious actually to to look into, I don't know if it's possible to do web components with WebAssembly, but it might be really interesting Ooh. to see if there are, mm -hmm. you know, the opportunity to create frameworks in non-JavaScript languages mm -hmm. that allow you to build reusable web components. That would be really cool. I think... I like the promise of web components in the shareability of things because when we talk about frameworks, what happens is that if you write a component in React, it's really hard to embed it in a separate framework like Vue without creating all this extra wrapper and like spaghetti code around it so that it works automatically when you could just, it's less work for you to just recreate that in that framework. And so web components was super nice as a concept because it was this ability for you to create a component that you can easily share and someone could just pull it down and it automatically works in whatever framework or whatever project that they're using. But I think there was a lot of disagreement as to how that would work. Like I think the implementation details or something like that with regards to it. But the thing that is cool is that web components did introduce 
the Shadow Dom, which has a lot more potential. And I think Shadow Dom has been something that the community has picked up on. So web, web components, not so much, but certain aspects of web components are actually pretty useful. Do you want to explain Shadow Dom? I'm so bad at explaining Shadow Dom. Can someone else do it? It's like the Dom, but there's a, a shadow. <laughs> it's like the Dom, but it's it's like a containerized version of it that's that's not able to uh, affect the outer page that it exists in. So you can style and run JavaScript and, and manipulate things as if they were global, but they're only global to that that shadow. I don't I don't know if you call an individual in a shadow or whatever, but only to that component. So then you can have styles and JavaScript running that only affect that element and can't actually read outside of that. So they can't have any effect on the outer page. Yeah, so it's it's sort of like a DOM within a DOM so that you can like do things globally without doing things globally, which I think is the, the upside. So you don't have issues with like scoping and closures, which mm -hmm. tends to happen when you're trying to do like weird... JavaScripty things that only affect one single part of your application. So that's like a really neat aspect of it, which you can use in browsers today, I believe. So one of the things that Glenn mentioned in his request for the episode is kind of figuring out or at least discussing some of the whys behind some of the stagnation and things that don't haven't come to pass or we don't think are going to come to pass or very slowly coming to pass. I think with each particular feature or aspect of browsers and the web mm -hmm. it's probably a different answer but with web components uh, one of y'all linked in a very interesting scathing piece about the broken promise of web components oh yes uh, which was written in 2017 so a, a bit outdated but in this piece we'll put that in the notes and i'll read just this one section from it because i think it does indicate some of what can happen when you work inside this milieu of standards bodies plus independent companies with mm -hmm. browser implementations, like the the web is as it is and how it moves. And he asks himself, and then he answers, what's the broken promise I hear about? He says, the main failure, this is a, a web component. He says, it's obvious. They're nowhere to be seen. Like that's the biggest problem. This was 2017. Mm -hmm. He says, the promise of feeding the process of progress is unfulfilled. By their sixth year, they spawned a total of six standards. Two of them are already deprecated. Only one major browser is committed to supporting them. And then he does this on Opera for a second. I'll skip that. <laughs> and then he says the other broken promise is the one bandied about the in the internets these days, interoperable custom components without vendor lock-ins. And that's the one that got him to write about Polymer. But I think there's something there. Like Web Components is complex. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to get buy-in to an implementation or to an architecture or to a strategy when you are trying to do it for everybody, right? You have design by committee necessarily, which is why there were six standards to have been deprecated. Like it just never has congealed into something. So, I mean, some of the things when it comes to the stagnation is just the nature of the beast, I think, of what we have and the way that the web does move forward. There's no dictator. And when, when a dictator starts to scooch themselves into place like a very popular browser <laughs> that implements things on their own and says, ah, this will be the standard. Well, we uh, we give them the side eye and we start to look for alternatives. So I'm curious what your all thoughts on on that aspect of at least the big movements like web components. So this is no this is not like the focus attribute. This is like a big 
a big thing. I think one of the things that made it really hard was just, so Web Components has been pushed forward for, for like a very long time. I don't even know when it started, but I feel like it's over 10 years. And Polymer was created as a way of implementing the Web Components spec. There's a lot of intricacies to Polymer. So there's a lot of decisions that Google made in terms of how they think Web Components should be implemented. So when you're working with Polymer, it's very specific. And in a way, I think that is what might have moved people away from Web Components as a whole, just the disagreement on implementation details. And then when Polymer was created, it was a way of moving the spec forward but mm -hmm. Google was leading the charge on that, which meant that they were making all they were calling all the shots with regards to how the implementation was going to be done and how the syntax was going to look like and so on, which I think might have been counterintuitive in terms of pushing the spec forward. The idea was to push it forward, but in making decisions, they did not push it forward because <laughs> there was more disagreement and people who you know overall just didn't like how things were done. And so you had that fragmentation that happened, which no one could decide how things were supposed to be implemented. One, because it's a really complex problem. Not only are you dealing with JavaScript, you also have to deal with like CSS scoping and how that's going to work. Right. It's a huge problem. It's very difficult to solve that. Exactly. And then that leads to like with React, they're moving CSS modules forward, which is like sort of a piece of web components, but very different from web components in and of itself. And so that fragmentation just, and CSS modules is more a result of React and the framework and the, you know, the challenges that they face when you're building React applications. So again, the moment you work on a framework and you make decisions and you're trying to push standards forward, the challenges or the problems that you're trying to face and solve are like so specific to the thing you're working on. All right. Plus, they need all the armchair quarterbacks like us, you know, just sitting around criticizing like, oh, you're failing at this, you're failing at that, like. You should do it this way. I, you know, this does not solve my particular use case. Like, it's a hairy situation. Us developers have way too many opinions. I think that's a problem. <laughs> we have, we'll tell you all the reasons why this is wrong, but we won't give you solutions. <laughs> we'll be like, you fix it. There's a couple of pieces that make this particularly tricky, right? So most web developers do not have the context of, or understanding of what actually is hard or easy to do within a browser. Mm -hmm. So that's, we often will come with unreasonable requests. Uh, on the flip side, I think most browser developers are not doing web development actively. And a common criticism of the standards bodies here is that they overrepresent browser vendors rather than the yeah, users. This is really just a tool technology. to look at mm -hmm. static documents, right? That's what a web browser is. I don't think even the browsers think that at this point. Do not underestimate the power of the independent open cloud for developers. Yes, I'm talking about Linode. Linode is our cloud of choice and it's the home of changelog.com. What we love most about Linode is their independence and their commitment to open cloud. Open cloud means being unencumbered by outside investment and maximizing value for the community, not shareholders. And that's exactly what Linode represents. No vendor lock-in, open at every layer. If you want to learn more, head to linode.com slash open. Again, linode.com slash open. So we were just talking about web components and various other things like container queries. Um, are there any other things and APIs that you think haven't moved forward. I can propose one, which is I think dates on the <laughs> web still suck. 
<laughs> and working with dates is still terrible. Because I often have to be like, oh, I have to work with this date. I'm going to pull in Moment.js. <laughs> and it's a giant library and automatically my project just jumps in size and the performance goes down. It's pretty dreadful. But I do know there's work that's being done there. So I do want to acknowledge that. I see in TC39, I think Maggie Pint and a couple of people are working on that. Just like moving dates forward and making that much better. But currently, if you want to work with dates, there's a lot of issues with it. I don't know. Have, how do you guys solve that? Or what are your experiences? Well, there's OkCupid, <laughs> there's Mash.com, there's Tinder. <laughs> I don't know. There's lots of choices for dates on the web, aren't there? <laughs> Moment.js historically has been how I've Yeah, which done is, it. as you highlight, mm-hmm. a huge pile. Like it's 100K or something. I haven't yeah. split it up at this point now. I think there's ways of grabbing parts. I know there's a date FNs library, which is kind of like Moment mm-hmm. if it was just piecemeal or not. That's a bad way of saying it. Moment if it was a la carte. But I feel like even the Moment team, because I was kind of ripping on Moment uh, maybe a year ago on this show and somebody emailed <laughs> and said, by the way, you can, Moment has done some work in making it kind of grab different sections. Now, I never went and double checked that, but I assumed. That oh, they've so made they pack like it's so you could pack it. It's like in packages, so you could yeah, just, like different yeah. So you could yeah. at least say, well, all I want is like the formatter. Yeah, there's also built-in tools now, like to locale date string, uh, where you can provide it a locale, and or I think it'll just pull the browser's native one, and then you can provide it options for specifically how you want to format that. Uh, that's kind of the main thing that I mm-hmm. usually want from Moment is is just a way to format it. Uh, but I've used this and it's mm-hmm. it's pretty nice being able to do that just built in. Oh, neat. I haven't used that. I think the, the there's alternatives to Moment. I think I've used Luxon.js, which is a bit smaller than Moment. And I, I believe in like some 11T examples, yep. Zach uses it as well in those things just because of like it's much smaller and much easier to work with than Moment.js. Moment is actually pretty easy to work with. It's just the size that's part of the problem. Yeah, I've really appreciated Moments API from the beginning. I when I first found it, I was like, "This is a great API. I love using it." So, uh, no dissing on the the engineering or the design side. It's just that it became the kitchen sink for all things related to time, and that ends up pulling in a substantial amount of. And considering that everyone uses dates at some point when you build a web application, that seems like it should be out of the box included in the browser. Or the browser should have a spec or an API that makes it easy to work with. But that hasn't happened. And it's only recently starting. I think it's, I think people have pushed it for a long time, but I actually don't know the politics of why that has not moved forward until very recently. I will say, while JavaScript's date is particularly bad, I don't think I have ever worked with a language where dealing with dates and time zones and all of that mess was something that made me happy. That's a fair criticism, yeah. Ruby? Even in Ruby, I feel like, I don't know, I always cringed every time I had to deal with... It's way better. It is way better. JavaScript is particularly bad. I'm not arguing that. I am also just highlighting that our (laughs) our expectations may need to be tampered down a little bit. (laughs) This is a really messy problem because it is not a clean abstraction. Mm -hmm. There are so many weird edge cases when it comes to times and dates and all of these Mm -hmm. things, and getting an implementation that makes it feel clean may not actually be very possible or may at least be very hard. Moment does pretty well. Moment is is pretty darn good on that front. The advantage of server-side languages is that they can augment the language itself without sending additional kilobytes down the wire. So mm-hmm. Python, Ruby, they all have these extenders to the built-ins or the standard library. 
and you can make the APIs as you know extensible and readable and yeah. expressionful as you want, but you're not making your user pay for it, right? Maybe you are in like server memory heap allocation, <laughs> and that all adds up, but it's not like uh, you know time to paint. I think it would be better if it just worked in browsers instead of having to be like, I need a server to fix this for me. Agreed. So that would be ace. So quick real-time follow-up. The the thought I was having about Moment actually is Luxon. And Timo in the chat helped hook us back up. To my Putting the dots together, and you mentioned Luxon, uh, Divya, that is actually written by one of the Moment's maintainers. And it's kind of like a lighter weight thing. Yeah, so clearly so. it's like... Moment's a great library in terms of implementation. It's just the size that I think is... Because I think at the time when they created it, it was JavaScript needed something to work with dates. And so I don't believe that performance and size of package were considered at all. I'm not sure. I, I have no idea. I'm just hypothesizing here. But, but I think as people are like, hey, this is a problem. Like We care about performance now. We want to make sure that just because we're dealing with dates our application is not giant. That's like, yeah, mm -hmm. front of mind for a lot of people. All right, I think we talked a lot about dates. And <laughs> I don't actually know how much more we can talk about that because we've covered quite a lot of ground with that. There's lots of other APIs that have not been developed. Let's pick another one. Let's start with accessibility because I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I think there's so many things with regards to accessibility that is not very well done in browsers at the moment. So it makes it really hard if you're visually impaired or if you have difficulty with movement that make it just impossible to work on the web. And that's particularly also because like it is again on the onus of the developer to do a lot of those things. So browsers don't have automatic ways to optimize for use cases that make it super accessible. And because of the burden it puts on a developer, People don't tend to focus on it or put a lot of effort onto that. Are there things that you feel that you all feel browsers could do better in terms of improving accessibility, making it a little better, or encouraging developers to work with accessibility or so on? I think going back to making forms and form elements easier to work with is probably the biggest thing because if I can just use those, the accessibility is built in. But if I have to write my own or or manipulate it in some cruel way, then that then it falls on me to get that right. And that's where it gets a lot harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Good point. Yeah, that's fair. I also think like, I don't know if this seems very extreme, but I do think it would incentivize people if there is a motivation to, to build accessibly. So for instance, if not having an accessible site harms your rankings in SEO, because then that automatically makes people realize that that's something they need to work on, especially if you're e-commerce or if you depend on revenue in any way, then you would have to build accessibly because you want to make sure that your SEO rankings don't fall behind and that whenever people search, they see your stuff because it's accessible. Does that feel too extreme? Well, I think there are some interesting things here that, you know, there is a question of how much do you want to force things on people? Sure, and yeah. One challenge with this and something I was going to bring up with one of the reasons we sometimes don't see progress that we'd like to is that the number one imperative of all of the people working on this is don't break the web. Yeah. Don't break backwards compatibility. There are websites that have been up for 20 years that are still mm -hmm. readable and they're ugly as sin, but they are still readable and they still work and that needs to continue being true. 
Mm-hmm. That said, I think there are kind of transformations that they could do. So uh, there's this reader view approach mm-hmm. that Safari and Firefox have done where they will kind of ignore a bunch of the <laughs> elements and CSS on a page mm-hmm. and just make it readable. And I think that that's something that, you know, maybe it's in a mode or I don't know, but certainly Chrome could learn from and do something interesting on. There's stuff we could do around contrast ratios. So Mm -hmm. there's, it's entirely possible to create websites right now that are essentially not readable by anyone who has trouble with colors. And Mm -hmm. there could be some sort of browser mode that just forces that. And if it makes the website ugly, well, so be it. Mm Mm-hmm. There was an article that I'm including in my newsletter this week that looks at a number of these. Uh, Some of the items they also bring up are things like fixing focus styles, kind of Mm -hmm. forcing that to be there. Because one of the lovely things that so many folks do when they start a new site is get rid of focus styles because the default focus styles are ugly. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. (laughs) And that just makes the website inaccessible along a number of different ways. Yep. I feel like Nick is laughing a little too hard about this. Is this uh, are you guilty of this one, Nick, or what's going on over there? Oh man, my first pull request to Dojo to the Dojo project was for the the mobile site, and I removed outline. I set outline none on all of the elements because it looked ugly. It was rejected, luckily. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely done that. I think sometimes when buttons have that little outline when you click on them, mm-hmm. and then I purposely yeah. remove them because they're really <laughs> ugly. <laughs> That's like very inaccessible because, yeah, how else if you're going through with a screen reader can you know something is highlighted? I think this is why we need to push more things down into the browser, more things down into libraries. Yeah. Because your average developer is not going to be an accessibility expert. They are not going to be using a screen mm-hmm. reader. And you know, in an environment where, I don't know what the percentage is, but something like 80% of web developers have five years of experience or less. And that, yeah. as in a growing field, we can't expect that this is solved by education. This mm-hmm. has to be something that we solve by baking it into things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think also just interestingly, it's just the way that we think about accessibility as the... So I know there's lots of people that talk about how we need to think in, about accessibility as a first-class citizen and build that into processes as we're building sites. But it's really hard because when you go through a site with a screen reader or any accessible device that you know helps you navigate a website versus looking at it visually, they're two different experiences. And so it's really difficult to build for that, especially if people are like, I want something that's beautiful and that's amazing and interaction is like really cool. And so... From that perspective, it's just really hard for some people to get on board with it because to them, they're like, well, our user base for people who are coming on using various devices is super small and therefore we don't want to build for it. But I think one of the things I found recently was this concept of an accessibility object model. So with accessibility, there's the accessibility tree, which is how if you're on a screen reader, you would navigate through a website, which is slightly different from the DOM tree because the DOM tree exposes everything and the accessibility tree kind of parses the pieces that are very important for interaction. 
But the accessibility object model is this idea of creating a completely separate, almost like a DOM, so to speak, where you can build a website from the ground up where it focuses on how that experience will look like, which I think is interesting because then you're no longer looking at the visual element of it, of how the page looks like, but how a page is navigated and then building from that perspective, which I think is like a really interesting way of thinking about it. I have no idea at what stage that is. There's a spec for it. Um, it is unofficial and I don't actually know what stage it's in, <laughs> but, but it's interesting just as a way of like thinking about accessibility and building for accessibility or getting people on board with building for things. But overall, I still think that browsers themselves need to have implementation inbuilt to, that optimizes for that because when you rely on developers to do a lot of that work, they're not, you know, the chances of them doing it are super low because they're going to optimize for developer ergonomics, what works for them, their own use cases. Like, you know, if I were building a website, I'd build for someone who has a similar experience to me rather than someone who doesn't. Because it's very hard to like kind of look outside of your perspective. So. It is. And the earlier you are in your career, the narrower the perspective that you have just by necessity. You're doing everything mm -hmm. you can to understand the basics and starting from what you can see and touch and feel. So if we want accessibility to be something, we either need to have it baked in or have it be something that you are forced to see and touch and feel from the beginning. Yeah, definitely. There's so much that needs to get done there. Are there like proposals that are happening within browsers to improve accessibility in the browsers themselves that I haven't mentioned? Mm, I mean, I think the accessibility tree is a big one. Yeah, that's the only one that I'm aware of. I'm sure there's lots more. I, I just feel like it's worth like checking out. I'm sure if you did like a search, you could find it maybe, or just like dive into the depths of W3C specs, which is also accessible. Like you can go onto W3C and see all the proposals from the entire history of W3C, including the retired ones. It's actually really fascinating to see what people have proposed until now. All right, let's look at something else, which is just, I, I think it's worth talking about SVG as well, like with regards to this. So I really like SVG because it's a really great way of animating. It's very easy to work with compared to when you do Canvas things, because Canvas is fast because it's WebGL but also in, like interacting with images is very difficult because it's a completely separate, it's outside of the DOM tree altogether. And SVG is really nice because it's altogether, you have the different components, you can draw really easily. Essentially the browser is the canvas rather than a separate canvas element. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, SVG is still not like a first class citizen, so to speak. People still use like CSS and hacks and things around that to do things. I think one of the big things is that like the sets of things that you can do in SVG and the sets of things you can do in HTML are close, but mm -hmm. there's an uncanny valley where some things just don't work quite the same. Some things don't work yep. in one or the other. And yeah. I saw something fly by, I believe it was in Firefox, where they were there's work underway now to unify the rendering pathways for SVG and HTML, which would potentially fix that problem of the the subtle differences there. But I mean, it's fascinating because SVG 
as a spec is essentially like HTML. It's another document mm-hmm. language. It's yep. arranged the same way. CSS is supposed to work the same way. JavaScript should work the same way. It should just work. And mm-hmm. it doesn't quite. <laughs> yeah. And there's also subtle differences depending on how you use the SVG. Are mm-hmm. you inlining the SVG? Are you using it in an object? And do you get like a shadow DOM of your own there? Are yep. you just dumping it in an image? Like there's all these subtle nuances that make it hard to just use it in the same way. Yeah, definitely. I don't actually know what the current work for SVG standards are. Um, I've been trying to look that up as we talk here. SVG2 yeah, working group. It's like SVG2, I think, is the one that's currently being... The W3C candidate recommendation for SVG2 is October 4th, 2018. Okay. I don't know if that means they haven't changed it since then. I, I, I do not track these things personally. So I'm Yeah, like, I I have no idea. I think they're at... S- at a black box. And hoping, <laughs> like a scorpion doesn't come out and bite me here. <laughs> SVG2... Editor's draft 4th of December 2019. So I guess that's the second version is ongoing or at least like in talks. I'm very unfamiliar with like standards work at just being on the outside perspective. Mm-hmm. I think most of us are. So is there anything else that you feel like we should mention that we haven't mentioned already? I think just going like in terms of accessibility, like one thing that, that is going right is I think that there is more of a focus on it in dev tools in surfacing problems. Mm-hmm. So like when you hover over, you know, text on a screen, it'll tell you the contrast ratio and whether that's good or bad in Chrome. And then things like the lighthouse. Right, that's and, true. And, you know, incentivizing you to improve those yep. by gamifying it almost to to developers is pretty good. So mm-hmm. that is good work. And I think that, that it should be recognized. Yeah. I, I really like the lighthouse scores as a way of like highlighting yeah. just your score with regards to accessibility, just because it shows it it surfaces it, and so people see that automatically in their dashboard when they pull up their Lighthouse scores. So that is like an important thing. That It's not super harsh, but it is something to encourage bringing up that number and improving that altogether. What's up, party people? Are you curious? Yeah, that's an interesting question because... Of course you're curious. You listen to JS Party. And I think you should also listen to our other podcast called Brain Science. It's a podcast for the curious. We cover the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, have information, mental health, and this thing we call the human condition. Here's a preview of episode 11. We're talking about the mechanism of attention. Studies talk about bottom-up features of perception, which is this degree to which our sensory systems are taxed or, or loaded upon. And that influences how much attention we can devote to a task. So say, for example, I, I think about this um, like my office staff or anybody in admin where phones are ringing perpetually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The sensory data you're taking in is consistent. Constant. Yeah. yeah. And you have people coming up to the front window. So you're seeing things, you're hearing things, your senses are on overdrive while you also then have to do other tasks like writing things down. And it's not like all of the internal processing stops. So that's the other component when I talk about top down that can constrain attention or awareness that 
for example, these are like our expectations or other people's expectations can also shift our attention sometimes in meaningful ways. Well, a meaningful way might be uh, suddenly I, I feel a sensation in my fingers. Oh, that that sensation is fire. <laughs> suddenly my full attention is now to the fact that I'm being burned. You know, my sensory, as you're talking about your, your different sensory organisms, to say, well, hey, hang on, you're actually on fire. You should probably stop everything, even though this meal is important. Your, right. your hand cannot be replaced <laughs> easily. Yeah. easily. But see how that's, you know, evolutionarily adaptive. Like we need yeah. to be able to register sensory data live, like it's happening in the moment so that that takes precedence. Right. That's why it's a bottom up. So it comes to that brainstem, which our brains fundamentally, the foundation of what our brains are always trying to do is keep us alive. Yeah, like, that's so cool, honestly. <laughs> right. Like, just don't die. Everything is about not everything is about every choice we make is about not dying. Right. And so right? think about it's this competing system. All right. To keep listening, head to changelaw.com slash brain science slash eleven. That will take you to an episode titled Competing for Attention, where we dig deep into the mechanism of attention as well as distraction. Again, changelaw.com slash brain science slash 11 or search for brain science in your favorite podcast app and subscribe. We'd love to have you as a listener. So I guess we'll dive into our next section. We're doing shout outs. Does anybody want to volunteer to start or should I just pick a name? K-Ball, do you want to go first? Sure. I'm going to shout out a series that of articles that have been getting published over at Smashing Magazine by Rachel Andrew. Right now, nice. for those who aren't familiar with Rachel Andrew, she is possibly the one of the world experts on CSS Grid. Yep. She is was instrumental, I believe, in getting the spec to happen. She's also the editor-in-chief of Smashing Magazine. And mm -hmm. when I've met her in person uh, at a conference, just a delightful person. So she's all around amazing. And she has been publishing a series diving into understanding CSS Grid that is absolutely phenomenal. And so if you have not yet taken the leap to learn CSS Grid, or you've started and you're confused about some things or whatever, I can't recommend mm -hmm. highly enough diving into this series. I'll link all three of them in the chat and we can put them in the show notes. There are three so far. I don't know if there's going to be more after that, but Oh yeah, she just released one. Phenomenal. It's like you're speaking directly to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Rachel is an incredible writer. She's All of her articles, yes. she just does an incredible job of breaking things down, making them understandable. And she can dive deep. Like she can go everything mm -hmm. from here's the high level of how you're using it down into here's yeah. the underlying mechanics that the browser is using to do this and how they're similar or different to other things. Like it's amazing. So start with this on CSS Grid. But really, if you go if you go to Smashing and you filter based on her articles, uh, which let me see if I can figure out how to do that so I can drop that list as well. Like, there's it's just all gold. <laughs> It really is. Yeah, I think um, Jen Simmons also has a ton of resources on CSS Grid. And I remember listening to a talk by her and just being like, I walked in thinking I knew CSS Grid. And I left not <laughs> realizing I don't fully understand CSS mm. Grid. <laughs> One of those, which is good, which means it was a very good talk because you're like, you know, you want to 
have your <laughs> confidence shattered sometimes. Oh, yeah. That's how you grow. Yeah, exactly. All right, Jared, do you want to go next? Absolutely. So I found this amazing little project called uh, Rotary Cell Phone. And it is open source, do-it-yourself, rotary cell phone built by Justine Haupt, or Haupt, H-A-U-P-T, so shout out to Justine for this amazing little project. And uh, I just thought it was so cool. I wanted to give her a shout out. So one thing she says is, she answers why. So like, why would you build a rotary cell phone? She says, because in a finicky, annoying, touchscreen world of hyper-connected people using phones they have no control over or understanding of, I wanted something that would be entirely mine, personal, and absolutely tactile, while also giving me an excuse for not texting. So this thing's fully functional. What? She can use it as her phone, and her plan is to do just that. She says, it's not just a show-and-tell piece. My intent is to use it as my primary phone. That's it fits amazing. in a pocket. It's reasonably compact. Calling the people I most often call is faster than with my old phone, and the battery lasts almost 24 hours. So we will link up that article she puts out, open source the design, her build notes, gotchas, the CAD files, and then she'll actually, she screen grabbed or she took pictures as she went along of like building the actual board and putting it all together. I was just so impressed by this project. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, commitment man. Right I can there. just imagine every time she gets it out, it's a conversation. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. No one would want to steal it. That's actually also the upside. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't mind having it. But yeah, if you don't know what it is, it looks like, I don't know, like a kitchen timer or something. You know, yeah. Like a Pomodoro timer with a little antenna on it. Yeah. I mean, I would steal it, but I'm sure. And I'm sure all of us would. Well, so for the kids out there, a rotary phone was an old style phone where you actually had a nine, the nine digits in a circle. And you had to crank the thing around so you go nine, and then it had to roll back. And then you go three and roll back. I'm not sure how she says she can so do things faster with that. But does this assume you have to know someone's number, or can you look that them would up? Be a how does for this me? work? I need more information. Ooh, that would be kind of interesting to figure out if, like, so she has additional buttons there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe so- speed dial. I wonder if there's speed dial or there's like, I could imagine you setting up at least nine if you do one digit codes, but you could have like two digit codes for people. Yeah. She does say she has a speed dial. So if she says, if I want to call my husband, I can do so by pressing a single dedicated physical key, which is dedicated to him. No menus. The point isn't to use the rotary dial every single time, which would get tiresome. The people I call most often are stored, and if I have to dial a new number or do something like set the volume, then I can use the fun and satisfying to use rotary dial. So, yep, speed dial built right in. So she went all out. Yeah, that's, that's delightful. Super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, we'll we'll definitely have to check that out. All right, Nick, what do you have for us? I have two small ones that I uh, two small shoutouts that I would like to call out. First one is Tim Pope. Thank you for the Fugitive plugin for Vim. Uh, it's kind of been redefining the way that I use Git uh, within Vim. And now I, I do so much within Vim without mm-hmm. using the command line. So I don't feel like I'm getting too far away from the, the CLI, which is good, but it does make things a lot easier. Um, and then I was going to recommend a talk uh, by Tatiana Mack uh, called How Privilege Defines Performance. 
And I would just recommend following her on Twitter because she's a really great person who talks about privilege mm-hmm. and uh, just a really, really awesome person to follow. She did speak at our at uh, the NEJS conference this or last year, I guess. And she gave this talk and it's just a wonderful talk. So definitely check it out. Awesome. Yeah, I, I watched that talk. It was really good. And I think it's recorded as well. So there's, there's ways to... Cool. All right. I have one pick, which is because we were talking a lot about standards... There was an article I came across called Understanding the ECMAScript Spec, which is a walkthrough. It was written by Marja Holta. I don't know how to say that name. Sounded good. Okay, cool. I, I probably, I probably, I, I, uh, it's really hard saying names when you, you've never heard it before. It is. But essentially, this article walks through how a ECMAScript spec reads because if you've ever tried to read the spec, it's really confusing. There's a lot of jargon and there's a specific format. There's things that they talk about. And so this kind of walks through the different sections and what to look out for, you know, how to just read the entire thing as a whole. Um, and it's part one. So I imagine there's like, is there more parts? Did I even? <laughs> no, there is not. The, it was uh, released on the 3rd of February. I just assumed there would be a new one because it's been like two weeks. But I, I imagine a new one, a next one is coming since they called it part one. Hopefully there will be a part two. But it's really enlightening because oftentimes when we talk, like I mentioned earlier, whenever it comes to standards, often developers are left in the dark because we are not in the process of talking about standards. We don't know how to read standards. We don't know how standards are done half the time, which is ironic because uh, the standards affect us. But this is nice because I, I, I believe this was written by the V8 team. And I think TC39 overall has been trying to be more open with their process because they've realized that they have a pretty poor image in the community in terms of just the lack of connection they have with the community. And so I think there's a lot of improvements being done. This particular article is definitely showing that. I have no idea if this is related to like the TC39 team at all. And if they were involved in this, they might have, they probably were, I imagine. But it's, it's nice to just be able to understand some aspects of things. So if you find a spec, like we were talking about the date time thing that's currently being worked on, it's interesting to just go in and look at it and then use this as a reference point to be like, what exactly does this thing mean? And read through, through that overall. So that is my pick for the week. And my pick closes out the show overall. Thank you all for listening and tune back next week. Comment on this and all our episodes at changelog.com. Pop up in your show notes and click discuss on changelog news. We'd love to hear from you. Support us by telling your friends, send a text, tweet, Insta story, pick your flavor of influence. We appreciate it. This episode was hosted by Divya Sasya Darn and produced by me, Adam Stakoviak. Special thanks to Jared Santo, K-Ball, and Nick Nisi for filling out the panel. Our music is produced by the Beat Freak Breakmaster Cylinder, and we are brought to you by awesome sponsors, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Oh, and one more thing, we have a master feed that brings you all of our podcasts in one single feed. Head to changeall.com slash master to subscribe or search for Change All Master in your favorite podcast app. You'll find us. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Good job, Divya. Woo. First MC in the bag. Was that your first time MCing, Divya? Nice. Yeah, it was. Great. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well done. Yay. Thank you.